the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Heidi ho neighbor. How are you? My name's Ian. Brian's here giving out double high fives, double air high fives to all the angels in the room. <laughs> Everyone who's here. <laughs> Steve and John. John's giving us spirit fingers. It is a lively Tuesday <laughs> here at AM 1160. Hope for your life. My name is Ian. Did I say that already? Yeah, I, I did. You did. <laughs> you did. I'm on my 12th cup of coffee. You're excited to be here. <laughs> I am. I'm just pumped. I'm pumped that you're here, Brian. I'm pumped that you're here, John. Uh, I do want to give you a little bit of information about the show. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com slash The Common Good. We're on Twitter at Common Good Talk. You can call us on the telefono. That is 312-660-2594. All right. So here's something that I we just can't get away from. It keeps coming up yes. in conversation. I keep seeing articles. Um, but I saw this today posted on USA Today, ironically. And uh, here's the headline and the subheading, and then we're going to we're gonna get into the weeds. It says, Welcome to America, the land of the perpetually whiny and offended. And then this is the subheading. Uh, Instead of debating ideas, the left and right are demanding that anyone who annoys them be cast out of polite society. So we're, we're talking about cancel culture. Yes. And essentially what that is, uh, if I could paint with broad strokes, are people typically in the limelight. I think that's been... The vast majority of the stories I've heard of people that are you know well known and we're digging up old tweets or old YouTube episodes or old sketches or whatever of things that maybe were fine 15, 20 years ago that uh, are deemed by a lot of people as pretty offensive now. And we're kind of just saying they're dead to us. There's yep. no and I found this so interesting because in an article like USA Today, uh, when it says what happened to grace and forgiveness, it says cancer culture is spreading for one simple reason. It works. Instead of debating ideas or competing for entertainment dollars, you can just demand anyone who annoys you to be cast out of polite society. And then it goes on and says, our woke mentality is America's new Puritanism. Instead of a handy list of sins written thousands of years ago, modern sins are ever changing. A joke that was deemed progressive a decade ago is retroactively condemned as hate speech today. Mm. And I'd love to know, as we've kind of touched on this a couple of times, where do you land in all this? How do you navigate this cancel culture and do we see this like at play in the church at all or is this simply just sort of a a pop culture type of conversation or is there is there something in between there i think it's everything right now whether it be uh pop culture that's where they start this article you and i talked about the sarah silverman podcast last week where and that's what they talk about in this article where she was going to be in a movie soon and instead they found an old sketch 10 15 years ago from a comedy show where she wore blackface uh, which and, is not no, it's good. okay. And right. she said back then it was a way to talk about race. It was kind of a funny sketch. And she said, I regret it. 
but they pulled her from the movie. And then this thing starts starts talking about Kevin Hart uh-huh. getting pulled from the Oscars for right. old jokes. Um, and then Bar. Roseanne Barr, which was interesting because that wasn't a past thing. That's what something she said in the moment. Right. And they said, we got to pull you from a show that had nothing to do with really what you said, because we don't want you linked to it. Um, and so they're asking that question, like, how do we go about this? But you and I were talking off air. It even gets for me, it gets even a more interesting when you even start talking about historical figures and, and talking about what did they do? Uh-huh. Uh, in their time where it was okay, but now it's not. And therefore, do we erase historical figures? You know, and you asked, does it happen in the church? I mean, famously, John Piper 10 years ago, five years ago, tweeted farewell Rob Bell, right? Uh-huh. When Rob Bell came out with some of his stuff. And that was who knew John Piper was on the cutting edge of cancel culture, right? Like kind of <laughs> a real trendsetter right there. And so the question is, I think it's something as a culture we have to wrestle with because uh, it's only going to get um, this seems to be because I, I love the way this USA Today uh, guy, John Gabriel, uh, talks about it because he says it's also a way to get rid of the people you don't like or agree with. Right. And so um, he says our woke mentality is America's new puritanism. Instead of a handy list of sins written thousands of years ago, modern sins are ever changing. A, do- a joke that was deemed progressive a decade ago is retroactively condemned as hate speech. And it goes on and on and on. And you're just like, yeah, I don't know where this is what I is struggle because I see why this is going on. Uh, but I can also see the danger of it. Like if everything you said five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago uh, can be um, again um, churned out in the in the in the. Uh, sphere of public opinion right now and what you said back then even if you haven't said it in 20 years should that then cancel you now i don't know i get really uncomfortable with it um but maybe there is something to it and and you and i talked about it with the sarah silverman thing last week what else makes me uncomfortable is who gets to decide what's canceled and not what's not who gets to make that call so I do think it's it's this is a classic example of a slippery slope that I think is really dangerous. I think that to be on one end of cancel culture now, you're going to find yourself on the other end of it on the next one. And and it can become dangerous. But I guess that there's also some validity to it. So I think that's what we as a culture need to wrestle with. Well, it's interesting because part of me wants to say, hey, that's the price you pay for being in the public space. If you're going to be a celebrity or a leader you are, or a politician, you're opening yourself up to some of that. We are entering in a very new age of uh, digital record keeping that, you know, 20 years ago wasn't really a conversation. But we did even have a conversation yesterday, though, about, you know, Billy Graham's grandson, Tulian, yep. who is now planting a new church after uh, a lot of problems, a lot of um, kind of systemic issues. And so part of the example that I gave was, what at our church when our pastor was removed, you know, that was 15 years ago now, but Your old church, uh, my old church, yeah. right. There was a, thanks, get Dave thanks, thanks, thanks for the clarification. <laughs> yes. Um, a lot of the outcry was, well, what about grace? What yep. about forgiveness? The, the exact question that this article is asking and part of what our elders, the conclusion that came to us, um, grace has been extended. He's been forgiven, but he's disqualified himself from leadership of this church. Yep. So I'm wondering, you know, even, even in this sense of like disqualification. And obviously I think we hold, we should <laughs> hold pastors and maybe different standards than right. actors and stuff. But I like how this article ends. It says, uh, when the mob has burned one, witch, they tighten their buckles on their hats and pour through old YouTube videos for their next victim. 
It's time for the perpetually offended on the left and right to bring back two concepts the Puritans were at least familiar with, grace and forgiveness. And just as we wrap up, I'm curious how in your mind does grace and forgiveness play out in the face of what have been some pretty awful, heinous acts? It wasn't just like, hey, 100 years ago, this was acceptable. You're like, nope, people did some pretty awful, terrible things. And I bet you 100 years from now, people will look at some of the stuff that is acceptable or okay by the vast majority of us. How do you reconcile in the church or in culture, terrible acts, condemning the acts, but then in like Sarah Silverman's case, like saying, hey, you've apologized You've owned it. We're we're not going to hold that over your head in the in the years to come. Yeah, I think there's there there's that there's a recognition, but then there's just understanding context, like um, that not everything is so black and white. That there can be a little bit of gray and go. Well, this is the context this person was either speaking in or living in. Even ten years ago, twenty years ago, it was very different. Yeah. That people change, people more, you know, people, um, you know progress and grow and that maybe we could be okay with someone going, you know what? I'm not proud of what I said 15 years ago, but here's who I am now. And we cannot, you know, get out our, our, our torches and be like, we're going to get that person that we can understand that a yeah. little bit and show grace and forgiveness and go, we don't need to cut everybody out for every by parsing everything they've said at all points of their life. Yeah. Hopefully this is something that we keep getting better at. And even as you and I kind of verbally process in a yeah. room with microphones, you're hearing some of our struggle with a lot of this. And uh, I have a feeling this isn't going to be the last time we're going to deal with this topic. OK, so let's let out a big exhale because our next segment. Here's the headline. Uh, people who decorate for Christmas earlier are happier According to a psychologist, we're going to find out if Ian and Brian actually agree with that or not. That's what's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins. Why did I say it like I was Bob Barker? (laughs) I love Bob Barker. Welcome back to The Common Good. Whatever. I love Bob Barker. Do you, though? Why do you love Bob Barker? Because I can remember growing up. Like, this is really funny. I feel like <laughs> when I would stay, you were homeschooled, so you missed these opportunities. Like, but like when you finally were either legitimately sick or talked your parents into making or like believing right. that you were sick. <laughs> I Now that I'm a parent, I could totally, I should apologize to my parents because I know they could see through it completely, but they played along with the gag. Do you think so? Oh, nice. 100%. I do it with my kids. They'll be I'm like, hey, good effort. You can stay home today. <laughs> Good effort. You'll give like a little yeah, applause, like for great performance. But uh, I can remember nothing felt like nothing said you're home from school than than more than the Price is Right for me. Like it felt like you were that scandalous makes to be watching the Price is like, Right when ooh, you should I'm be watching at something school. I'm not supposed to be. No, right. I was supposed to, but you're like I'm supposed to be at school right now. But instead, <laughs> I'm watching Plinko. This is the best, which is probably pretty funny to a teacher too, because I imagine watching it, you were still kind of doing like math in your head, <laughs> so you're still learning. They still won. The house always wins. Do you think he was a good guy, though, Bob Barker? You liked him because of what he was like associated with. Plus, and, Happy Gilmore, right? That, yeah, but he's portrayed kind of a, as a jerk in Happy Gilmore. So, so there are, uh, there are. I don't know if there's substantiated or unsubstantiated stories about Bob Barker that would maybe uh, answer that question. But I'm going to choose with the Happy Gilmore slash Price is Right Bob Barker. I'm going to live with that image in my head. I just looked him up. He's 95 years old. And, and have your pet spayed and neutered. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all what I was planning to talk about, but that was a fun derail. Okay, so here's an article that I really, really don't like at all. Oh. Not even a little bit. Okay. Are you ready for this? I am. People who decorate for Christmas earlier are happier according to... To a psychologist. Is this just a psychologist? 
Just the one, because I feel like this psychologist is probably one of those stupid people who keeps her Christmas decorations up all year. <laughs> wow. Tell us how you really feel, Brian Fromm. No, you tell me why you're mad about this. So go ahead. Can I first yes. go on just a little bit of an old man rant here? I, I'm, I am so ready. Oh, my gosh. I, this, so I can't believe we've not talked about this. I love Christmas so much. Yep. So when I say what I'm about to say, people will often go, why don't you like Christmas, Ian? I love Christmas so much in its proper place. Which, by the way, Christmas does not mm. end on December 25th. If I could get all orthodox on Keep you going. all. Like, Go. You it, take this anywhere you want. That's the beginning. Okay. Part of my issue, though, is that we'll start seeing Christmas decorations in September. And what really drives me crazy is when we skip right over Thanksgiving, the holiday meant for us to really remember and be grateful for all that we yes. have. How do you feel about Black Friday, by the oh, way? Oh, don't even get me started <laughs> no, on Black sorry, Friday. Back to Christmas. Keep going. Which my brothers and I would actually go to for funsies. Yep. We would just like pretend that we were distance runners at Black Friday sales. And we'd dress like in sweatbands and running shorts. That's a whole different story. But the idea and that we... completely believable, oh, too. Yes, That's a 100%. We used to do it every year. But we skip over this holiday... That's meant to be about gratitude and thanksgiving for what we already have, for family, for time. And we jump right to yep. like more debt, more stuff, more consumerism. Things, by the way, that I can't think of many things more opposite to like the centrality of Christ's life. Like mm-hmm. that, that probably drives me crazy as well. And I love Christ. I think day after Thanksgiving, decorate your brains out. Get okay, all the, so you're a Thanksgiving. You got to get the Thanksgiving. Because when we skip over that, it just sort of diminishes, I think, the real significance of gratitude. I think it's such a needed and lost posture of the American heart that mm. when we jump right to, and I know some people like their love language is giving gifts. And so for Christmas, it's not about getting stuff. It's yep. for them. It's like how they love people. I'm not, I mean, I'm definitely sympathetic to that. But this idea that people start decorating in October or November Honestly, drives me a little crazy. And the fact that we stop, there's like a hard stop at December 25th, 26th, and then it's over. Like, there's all sorts of, oh, I want to like send people, like, I want to send everyone I could, like, just a, a book on like what the 12 Days of Christmas is about and why celebrating <laughs> that whole holiday in its fullness is so important and so beautiful and so missed. I think in our Western context, but I have no idea if I'm offending you by all this. Maybe you're an early decorator. I don't know. I I am not an early you're decorator. You're not. Okay. No. So now let me get, I'm going to have an old man moment here. For, yes, for let's a call this the old man segment. Uh, when did decorating, when did Halloween lights become a thing? Oh, I don't. Did that happen in your neighborhood with yes. people who put up the, no, I get the scary, like the scary, like, ooh, we're going to put a tombstone, you know, fake tombstone in our front yard. But like decorating your bushes with orange lights for Halloween, that's like a pet peeve of mine. Oh, but, it is? Oh, yeah. Because it's like not a... Real holiday? Or? I might have told my kids one time we drove past someone in the neighborhood and they were oh, no. like, why don't we do that? And I said, because it's dumb. <laughs> oh, so it's not a Christian thing for you. You just don't like it. Oh, no, not at all a Christian <laughs> thing for me. In fact, it causes me to act unchristianly. But uh, no, I'm not an early decorator. Uh, yours is much more on a principled stand. Mine is much more on a like, I don't ever get to it. Oh, the really? Ones, okay. The ones that bother me are the people who leave their Christmas lights out all year long and just unplug. <laughs> But, I think, I think um, that's kind of genius, actually. That's how my family used to do it. But, <laughs> Seriously, awesome. we went away on a vacation one July, and our next-door neighbor like climbed up our tree, took them the lights, and coiled them up on our porch. Stop <laughs> it. Well, I love your family, but, you know. Uh, I do, too. It is, uh, yeah, Christmas Christmas uh, early. I do get what you mean, too, about like once you start seeing it, it's become such a consumeristic holiday. Right. 
Uh, and then the, that Thanksgiving that where we're supposed to uh, sit and think about what we're thankful for has turned into like, how early can I get to the mall or get to Amazon? Yes, right. It's, it just those two things speak amazingly about who we are as a culture. Well, and I found this interesting. I will. I want to be even handed here. A study published in the Journal of Environmental Psychology revealed that there is a correlation between decorating a house for Christmas and seemingly more open and social to neighbors. The study said that a seasonally decorated house could help people without friends on their block quote, integrate themselves into neighborhoods, social activities. So I get that there is certainly some social components that are helpful yeah. here. I know for a lot of people, especially if they've lost loved ones, like decorating and taking part in all those festivities is a way to kind of cope and heal. So I'm not, I'm not I don't want to sound like just a curmudgeon. I'm not insensitive to those things. I just think Thanksgiving can do so much of that, too. Yes. And when we skip right over that to the to the gimme, gimme, gimme. Yep particularly as a way to honor Christ's birth and then stop right at the 25th. I don't know. That's like a trifecta that kind of drives me crazy. <laughs> I, yours does make a lot of sense. Although I tend to get caught every year uh, post Thanksgiving. Uh, the neighbors have picked like that one Saturday where it's 58 degrees in December uh, to like nice, have a nice time of hanging their stuff. And I'm always like, I got to, got to do it. And I don't get to it. And then I end up hanging it when it's like right. 21 and misting yeah, outside. Totally. Cause my kids like, we got to get the stuff up. And I'm like, Oh no, <laughs> uh, that tends to be me, but it is interesting. I get that. Some people do. I think you bring up a great point though, about, uh, and I'm sure you and I are going to talk about it a lot. Well, you and I have never been doing a show around Thanksgiving or Christmas That's time right. and, and trying to help people remember like, you know, the, the, <laughs> The, the weird way of saying it is like Jesus is the reason for the season, right? But like not being flippant about it, but trying to remind people Thanksgiving and at Christmas, like remember what this is supposed to be about. Well, and I'll, I'll end with this to a sort of a, a counter argument. Psychologist Steve McGowan uh, told Unilad, in a world full of stress and anxiety, people like to associate the things that make them happy and Christmas decorations evoke those strong feelings of the childhood, yeah. which I'm for. The wonder and awe of Christmas. Like, I'm getting excited about it. Just not like, please hear me. I love Christmas. I love wonder. <laughs> I love awe. I love getting gifts for people. It's something that I really enjoy doing. I just think sometimes we miss so much of the significance of Christmas by skipping over Thanksgiving, the season meant for yeah. family and for food and for enjoying each other's company. Like, I think it's like getting to Easter with, without sitting in good Friday. You know what I mean? Like there's, it's not quite the same, but there is something to be said about let's first look at all that we do have. Yeah. Whether, yeah. whether it's a lot or a little or however you measure that, like be grateful, a posture of gratitude. I, I honestly, I think is needed now Maybe more than ever. And uh, that's my soapbox. And I'm sure I'll never speak of it ever, ever again. All right, Scrooge. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. You've been listening to The Common Good right here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Soraya Lewis is a Food for the Poor employee in our Haitian office in Port-au-Prince. Soraya, there's not a lot of news coverage about what's happening in Haiti at the present moment. Can you give us a firsthand account of what's going on, what the situation is? What's going on right now is that there's just a lot of turmoil and it's affected the lives of Haitians everywhere around the country. There's a food shortage, a lot of insecurity. And it's just very chaotic to live in Haiti right now. Life for the average Haitian family has been just uncertain because waking up on a daily and not knowing if you're going to be able to put food on the table is just the worst feeling. And it's it's constant uncertainty because we don't know when things are going to get better. We don't really know where to turn 
to just have more peace of mind. So extreme uh, lack of food because of the drought, crops aren't growing, livestock is dying, food prices just unreachable. Most people can't afford to feed their family. I know the water situation is also a huge concern. Talk a little bit about that. About a month ago, I was in Cornillo, where Food for the Poor intervened rapidly because there was a water crisis there. It was painful to watch, really. People just lining up the entire day, just waiting to find water. What they did was they had water trucks um, responding to the emergency. So the truck would go by through the city the entire day and stop at various points to distribute water. But it just felt like their lives just revolved around the idea of being able to find water. That's, that's all they did. That's not normal. It was like nothing I've seen before. Again, that translates what a lot of Haitian families are going through, not just about water, but also about food, also about basic health, just not being able to go to a hospital because hospitals are closed, because doctors are not getting paid, and they refuse to go in because they're not able to support their families themselves. People are waking up every day and not being able to meet their basic needs. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm, and uh, we are excited again to be joined by Todd Chapman. Todd is uh, from Food for the Poor, and that story you heard there was trying to paint the picture of the humanitarian crisis uh, going on in the nation of Haiti. So first of all, Todd, thank you so much for uh, joining us again today. Hey, thanks, guys. Always love to be with you. Absolutely. Uh, That was just powerful to hear. Can you talk about what Food for the Poor, especially for those who haven't heard uh, heard us talk about it yet, uh, what is Food for the Poor doing? What is the opportunity that people have to make a difference in the nation of Haiti? Yeah, sure. So uh, first of all, a little background on Food for the Poor, uh, because I never want to assume that uh, any of our listeners have heard of Food for the Poor, even though we are one of the largest international relief and development organizations in the United States, uh, 38 years old, uh, and uh, have been in in Haiti actually for more than 30 years, working hand in hand with the local church. But a lot of people haven't heard from uh, Food for the Poor and don't really realize the scope of all the work that God does through Food for the Poor, frankly, because we just don't spend a lot of money uh, you know, advertising uh, across the country. Instead, we choose to give that money to the poor uh, and make a, a difference in the developing world. And so maybe you've never heard of Food for the Poor, although I'm pretty confident if you've listened to uh, 1160 Hope for any length of time uh, over the last few years, you've probably from time to time uh, heard about or maybe even been a part of our, our many partnerships uh, with uh, with the station. And uh, But basically, Food for the Poor, our 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 foundational verse is Matthew 25, uh, 34, where, where basically Jesus said, you know, when you've done it to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. And uh, so, uh, you know, for 38 years now, we have just partnered with uh, the church in countries like Haiti and Guatemala, about 18 countries around the world now. And uh, we have uh, just sought to minister to the abject poor, people that are trying to survive in some of the poorest countries in the world. And they're trying to live on maybe a dollar, two dollars a day. And uh, the only way that uh, we've actually been able to to make a difference is is just because of the generosity of people like our listeners, people like you that have, uh, you know, you hear about the need and you choose to give a gift of uh, $100 or $200 or $500 or $27 a month, whatever God lays on your heart. And uh, with your generous gifts, we're able to work with local churches, local pastors, and turn your gifts into food 
into clean, safe drinking water. We've built uh, thousands, actually hundreds of thousands of homes uh, across 38 years which is another huge need uh, in the, in these countries. And, you know, in short, this is an opportunity for you to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And in this case, guys, in Haiti, which is the poorest country in this side of the world and going through a really, really hard time right now with uh, this food crisis. All right. So the number to call right now is 855-901-4673. That's 855-901-4673. Or you can go to 1160hope.com. Click the Haiti Humanitarian Crisis there at the top. And uh, here's the ask. $320 of one-time gift, which breaks down to about $27 a month, provides food for a year and water for life for one family. Maybe you're thinking... We can do way more than that. Maybe it's a small group. Maybe it's a business. Maybe it's a couple of families in your block. But we are really, really calling on our common good family uh, to care for these other families. And I'm wondering, in just a couple of minutes, Todd, could you tell us a bit about what it's like to sort of be on the ground to see some of what you're talking about? Yeah, so I've been to Haiti uh, more than a dozen times in my nearly 10 years with Food for the Poor, and it's it really is just gut-wrenching poverty. Uh, I, I mean, and I've traveled to a number of uh, third-world countries, but Haiti's uh, worse than anything I've ever seen and, and actually getting worse now than it uh, has over the last been in the last 10 years or so. As a matter of fact, many experts have said that uh, things in Haiti now are worse than they were in the wake of the the earthquake of 2010. Oh, wow. That was a bad scene then. But and, you know, it's um, it, it's it's pretty staggering. You as you drive around, uh, whether it be the streets of Port-au-Prince or out into the countryside, you see people uh, desperately doing anything they can to just survive another day. Mm. And so, like in Port-au-Prince in particular, it's this beehive of activity. I mean, it's a city of about four million people, and the streets are just jam-packed with people carrying stuff, and they've got their little roadside stands set up, and they're trying to sell stuff. I mean, everything from baggies of water to fruit to furniture to, uh, you know, uh, little containers of, like, Gatorade-sized containers of gas. I mean, you name it, everybody's got this hustle going on. Mm. But I can't, you know, every time I'm there, I'm just like, man, this is just... An exercise in futility because everybody's working so hard, but nobody's getting ahead. Mm. They're just trying to survive day to day. And then if you go into a home of, uh, you know, just pretty much anybody in that country, because 90% of this country of 11 million people literally uh, lives in, on less than $2 a day. And so it's the same story, uh, you know, whether in the city or outside the city. If you go into the, the house of a typical poor person there, um, it's always the same thing. A lot of kids, never enough food. Uh, they live in little ramshackle huts uh, that are not fit for you know human uh, occupation. And oftentimes they're sleeping on the ground or maybe the whole family sleeping on a little mattress. Wow. They never have enough food to eat. Work is nearly impossible to find. And so it is an absolutely desperate situation. And honestly, guys, it's it's hard not to just you know throw up your hands and say, "Well, mm -hmm. this is hopeless." Yeah. You know, what, how, how's this ever going to get any better? But we can't we can't do that, right? We can't do that for a couple reasons. Number one, because we always have hope in Jesus Christ, and uh, you know, absent that, Haiti would be a very very hopeless situation. But uh, across thirty eight uh, years of working in in eighteen countries and thirty of those years in Haiti, we have seen a difference. Uh, that you can make as a donor to Food for the Poor, 
one family at a time, one person at a time. And so that's why we're coming to you today and just saying, you know what, don't don't get focused on the big problem. Focus on the difference you can make mm-hmm. for one person, for one mom, for one family. And when you consider the fact that for less than a dollar a day, you can lift a family right now that literally is is in a situation where they're not eating on a daily basis. You can solve that problem for them if you just would see it in your heart to make a commitment of $27 a month. And that's what we're asking you to do mm-hmm. right now. And, guys, I'm real excited because when we started uh, this campaign earlier this month, we had about 30-some families that we had kind of uh, earmarked for the uh, 1160 Help family. And we're down to 10 families now. So nice. we are almost done with this. And I believe that we could wrap this up in just a, a real short amount of time. It would only take just a few people saying, you know what, I've heard you talking about it. It's a busy time of year. And I'm sorry I haven't done it yet, but I'm going to do it right now. So call 855-901-4673. 855-901-4673. We're asking, would you prayerfully consider making a commitment of $27 a month for the next 12 months? And with that, we're going to be able to feed a family, give them clean, safe drinking water for life. Absolutely. You can also go to 1160hope.com. That other voice you hear is Todd Chapman. He is with Food for the Poor. We're going to remain with Todd in our next segment. We're going to talk more about this humanitarian crisis and what we can do about it this Christmas season. That's next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Is it difficult to find food for your family? Things aren't easy. Some days we find food, and other days we don't, so we don't eat. Sometimes I go down to the city of Kwadebuke and I sell my bee, but since I just gave birth to him, and he's still a baby, so I don't, I can't go anymore. And my husband sometimes tries to work to provide, but life is hard. I don't have enough food for my body, but he's a baby. I have to breastfeed him. How long has it been since you've eaten? What did you do? I had a little bit of rice with the kids. And do you pray? And if so, what do you pray? I say, God, today you gave me a little bit of rice. I hope tomorrow you'll give me something, maybe something different, whatever you can. Welcome back to The Common Good on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. And that is uh, some audio that is continues to do the job of painting the picture of the humanitarian crisis going on in the nation of Haiti. And we are uh, thrilled to be joined again by Todd Chapman from Food for the Poor. Food for the Poor is an organization we here at AIM 1160 believe very much in. And here's the opportunity you have today uh, for $27 a month or a $320 one-time gift that will provide food for a year and water for life for one entire family of four in Haiti, uh, where it's not just kind of a crisis. It is a full-blown humanitarian crisis. Uh, People not able to get food, not able to get water, not able to get electricity, and all sorts of things that we take for granted. Uh, And so uh, we are close to supporting all the families that we had intended to support. And so we're asking you to call 855-901-4673 or go to 1160hope.com. And Todd, I'm curious, you've talked a couple times about the church in Haiti that you guys work through. Uh, could you paint a picture for people of uh, what that church is like, the work they're doing in the midst of this crisis? 
Yeah, so you know uh, the church in in Haiti uh, is really really vibrant and alive, and I and I want people to know that because I I can't tell you how many times I'll be talking about Haiti and I get in conversations and and people uh, have kind of heard a lot of the negative stuff about Haiti as it re- as it relates to voodoo and things like that, mm-hmm. and and I've even had people say to me, well, you know, uh, Haiti's getting what it deserves because mm-hmm. of uh, voodoo and all that stuff, and and my response is always, well, first of all, uh, I pray to God and I, I thank God every day that I don't get what I deserve. Yeah. Yeah, no kidding. You know, because uh, there's not a single one of us. All of us are, are sinners. And, and absent uh, the, the saving blood of Jesus Christ, none of us have any hope, regardless of whether it's voodoo or just sin or, you know, all the stuff we struggle with. So uh, I want you to know that, yeah, voodoo is, is a real thing in Haiti. It's not as pervasive as people think it is. And the Christian church is alive and well in Haiti. As a matter of fact, uh, you know, I, I was talking to uh, a pastor there, Pastor uh, Joseph, in a little community called Kadwa. And uh, he said, you know, the interesting thing is that the people in Haiti are so incredibly desperate and they know they can't turn anywhere else. I mean, they they, they have literally nowhere to turn. Uh, you know, the mm. government offers them no support. There's no safety nets like welfare or food stamps or anything like that. Mm. Uh, you know, their neighbors are just as poor as they are. So the only place that they have to turn is to God and to the church. And so in the middle of the day, you will be driving around uh, Haiti and you'll come into a deserted little village and and uh, you'll hear uh, the sounds of worship going on in uh, in a church. And man, I'm telling you, these people are on fire. They are in there in the middle of the day, in the middle of the week, worshiping. It's not just church on Sunday, but they are in church all the time seeking the face of the Lord, and that's that's where they get their hope from. Hmm. And in the face of the, the level of hopelessness that the, that they are facing, you know, it's, it's absolutely critical. But, you know, the thing about it is these pastors that we work with at the churches, they have that pastoral heart, just like you guys. You guys are both pastors. You know what it's like to know uh, that you have, a, uh, you know, someone in your congregation that's in need. And in this case... A lot of the the crushing stuff is the just the material need. We don't face a lot of that in right. in a lot of places here in the U.S., but they do in Haiti. They need food. They need water. Uh, they need medicine. They need medical attention. Things like that. And these pastors are just as poor as the people that attend their church, and so they have a heart to help. But they don't have the resources to help. So imagine uh, what happens when Food for the Poor comes in, begins partnering with that pastor, and provides those absent resources. Man, that is like the real deal gospel right there, because suddenly it's not just, hey, you know, I'm praying for you. I mean, that's awesome. But when your kids are starving, you know, uh, prayers can sometimes sound like a, a hollow promise. You know what I mean? Right, right. But when a pastor can come in and say, hey, you know what? Uh, just got word that Food for the Poor has the ability to add three more families to the feeding program. And so here you go. Let's get your kids fed. Man, suddenly that is a gospel that has impact and that has weight. And so, friends, that's what you make happen when you give to Food for the Poor. The feeding programs are already in place. 2,600 points of distribution of food, largely through churches, some schools, but largely churches all across the country of Haiti. And when you make your $27 monthly gift or your $320 monthly gift or a one-time gift, or it could be monthly, that'd be cool too, but it's a $320 (laughs) one-time gift, uh, you know, you allow another family to to feel the love of Jesus in a tangible way. And I'm telling you, because I've seen it with my own eyes, your gifts change lives. 
And I want you to know that today. I want you to hear that, especially during this season of hope and this season of joy uh, that we're celebrating here at Christmas time. Uh, you know, in Haiti, yeah, they, they, they celebrate Christmas, but it's hard to celebrate when you don't have, you know, anything to eat. Right. Uh, but you can, you can really bring hope into a dark situation right now. Yeah, and again, that number to call, and we're encouraging you to call right now. Whatever you're doing, go ahead and hit pause. Step away from the dishes if you have to. 855-901-4673. That's 855-901-HOPE, or you can go to 1160hope.com. A $320 one-time gift or $27 a month provides food for a year, water for life for one family. There also is a business benefactor level. Brian, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yep. If you're a business owner, a marketing manager for a business, or if you would like to promote something like your church, your school, a ministry, uh, then you need to become an AM 1160 Food for the Poor Business Benefactor. Here's how it works. A one-time gift of $1,000. You will receive 41-minute commercials that will air right here on AM 1160 between 5 a.m. and 8 p.m. Monday through Friday. So it's a win-win. Food for the Poor gets the $1,000. Uh, Families get food and water and you, your organization, your school, your church, whatever it is, uh, gets these commercials here on the radio station. All the money goes to food for the poor. And you can use those commercials, as we said, to promote your business, your church, your school or your ministry. So if that's something you want to do, we know lots of businesses are are, they've got end of the year giving to do. Uh, You know, you've got you got some somewhere you want to make a donation. Uh, If you want to learn more about becoming a a business benefactor uh, called Jeff Reisman at 847-472-8921. That's 847-472-8921. And for everybody else, what we're asking today is $27 a month, which uh, comes out to about $320 a year, less than a dollar a day. That will provide food for a year and water for life for one entire family of four. Some of you can give more than that. Some of you, it's less. $80 provides food for a year and water for life for one child. So 855-901-4673 or go to 1160hope.com. You're listening to The Common Good. We are being joined by Todd Chapman for Food for the Poor. Todd's going to join us for one more segment as we continue to try to help families in Haiti. Coming up next on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey everyone, Ian Simpkins here. And after we had this marriage conference with Thrivent and two other local churches, it kind of piqued my interest to learn more about this organization. We had such a good response with them at the conference. I was kind of interested in seeing what else they did. And so they actually provided me with this list of like 12 or 13 different topics that they offer free workshops for people that want to be wise with money and live generously. And the thing that was crazy is that each of these topics were things that people in my church were actually asking me, things that I didn't really know how to talk about. And so they offered numerous free workshops for the people in our church to help them be wise with money and to live generously. And let me tell you, it was this really beautiful sort of no strings attached kind of a, we want to help you do this better. And that was kind of the continuation of my relationship with Thrivent and being really grateful for the ways that they were coming alongside us and the local churches around us. And if you're interested at all in learning more, I cannot encourage you enough to head to Thrivent.com today. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. We're excited to have you joining us today. Uh, and we love when we get people in the studio just to have some some conversation with. And with that in mind, we are uh, thrilled to welcome into our studio today, Mark Galley. Mark, thanks for joining us today. Hey, glad to join you. Absolutely. Mark is the editor and chief 
of Christianity Today. He's got lots of other things on his bio. Uh, But at Christianity Today and as the editor-in-chief, you've just written a series of columns um, about worship and about more about American Christianity called The Elusive Presence. Uh, And I'm curious... Kind of a grand scale question, just your thoughts as to why you wrote this. Why did you feel like you wanted to invest this much time kind of uh, talking about and dissecting and analyzing American Christianity? Well, I am uh, in my 60s now, and I've been observing. (laughs) I've been embedded in the evangelical movement for some time since I've been like 13. And I've spent a lot of time thinking about it, reading about it, writing about it. And I thought, uh, well, this is kind of the time in life when one steps back and says, okay, this is what I'm observing. Now, part of that observation comes out of my, observing my own life. Yeah, as, yeah. as the very first essay in this uh, series indicated, I remember coming to a conclusion. I can't remember if it was a single day or over a period of days where I, I just realized I was a really good professional Christian. Mm. That is to say, I knew I could... I could be an editor at a Christian, a leading Christian magazine. I could be a church member. I could be a um, participate in the church's life and not pray, not read my yeah. Bible. I knew how to how to do it well. It yeah. wasn't that I didn't believe in God or didn't try to follow Him, but there it, there was not this sense of active uh, involvement with God and with me and God. Oh, it was like good. I was doing the things I was supposed to do. Right. And as I looked around, I began to realize that my whole life was kind of horizontally focused on love of neighbor as well. It should be, hmm. uh, but that there were large parts of the evangelical movement, especially American Christianity who were, I mean, that's our kind of a calling card in world Christianity. We are the doers. Yeah. We're yeah. the people that get things done. That's right. And I just got to thinking, where does the commandment love the Lord, your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your soul. How does that fit in? And that's what got me thinking about this theme and decided to put it down into words. So that's actually, a sentiment that Brian and I bring up a lot because we, we are both pastors and we have probably sometimes um, in an unplanned fashion admitted on the show how how tempting it is to get caught just in the in the work of Christianity and how sometimes that's even perpetuated by our churches. Like, well, you're the professional. You're the one on stage. Mm-hmm. I give my tithe so that you do the work. <laughs> yeah. And, and that can be really convicting. And one of the things in one of these essays, uh, you were interviewing Rob Bell about uh, a book at the time that he'd written. You asked him, what, what is the what is the purpose of the church? And he said, the purpose of the church is to make the world a better place. And I think many people at first blush would say, oh, that's a great answer. And yeah. you kind of go on to unpack a little bit of some of your issues with that. Would you talk to me a little bit more about that conversation and, and where you went? Yeah, having in a seminary and then later studied uh, much church history, that's been one of my passions. I, it struck me that that was an almost identical phrase to... Uh, to uh, what, what we now call the social gospel, mm-hmm. yeah. um, which was whose vision in the 19th century was primarily to, the church's role was to make a, the world a better place along with industry, along with labor, along right. with education. That's what it, it end, ended up devolving into hmm. kind of a more purely social work with yeah. a religious veneer. And that's hmm. what struck me as really amazing for him to say that because evangelical tradition has been basically uh, has fought against social justice movement. Now, right. I think we've gotten to the point where we recognize getting involved in in the world, trying to help our neighborhoods be more just and fair and good and beautiful and flourishing is a good thing. Yes. Mm-hmm. But what struck me about that was, as I began to look around, is that has become 
that notion that the church's job is to make the world a better place or the purpose of the church is to change the world. Mm. That's become kind of the overriding, what I'd call the ecclesiology or the view of the church. Yeah. I think, and I need to qualify this. I think the church does have a mission to the world. No question about it. But I think the very purpose and essence of the church is not about making the world a better place. And so I argued in that, and I'm arguing in this entire series, our very purpose at the very core, which begins with worship, Mm. is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And if we lose track of that, I don't know. I just feel it. It's a big problem. Let's summarize it. Well, that's from the Westminster Catechism, right? Yes. Right. To enjoy God, to glory in him. And I, I think that definition certainly does work in conjunction with, like you're saying, the love of neighbor and all of that. Yeah. But to get that order out of whack can actually yeah. really screw that's, things that's up. That's the thing I'm, I'm trying to address. Yeah. How do you feel like, um, as you've looked at this over the years and been a part of it, how do, uh, what does it look like to get that right? Because it's such a fine line right there, right? The, the, the whole missional church movement and there's other stuff. How do churches get that right, that they've got enough mission going on, but it's driven by the right thing? What what are some aspects of churches you think that do that right? Well, a lot of this comes down to uh, what I'd call uh, discernment of your own spirit. Mm. And I think that's the place where it begins. So when I make these sweeping statements about the evangelical church or the American church, I'm assuming the the reader is going to do some discernment of spirit and saying, you know, that isn't really my experience or that really Mm -hmm. is. And some of that discernment comes in. Uh, when I wake up in the morning, what am I most excited about? Mm. Uh, this morning was very typical. I mm-hmm. just did not want to do morning prayer. Mm. Just did not want to do it, which signals I have this to-do list yeah. that really makes me excited and interested about waking up and getting my day started, mm. which suggests that God is all well and good, but he's kind of get in, getting in the way <laughs> yeah. of the things I have to do today. Yeah. Mm. And that signals to me a moment when I should just stop and say, Lord, my heart is not in the right place and I can't manipulate my heart to be in the right place. Only you can do that. Yeah. Right. So as I begin this time, uh, creating me a new heart, oh God, mm. creating me a new heart. Yeah. And um, I think that's where it starts. What does it motivate us? What gets us excited? When, when we find ourselves, I don't know. Uh, you gentlemen may be greater saints than I am, but there are days I don't want to go to worship. Yeah. Just Ian is. Just <laughs> yeah, not even, not even close. There are. I, I have tried to uh, punctuate my day more with prayer, even though it's a five yeah. or ten minute like time at noon or at late in the afternoon or evening. I find myself forgetting to do it. Mm. I find myself resistant to doing it. Yeah. And I'm thinking, what is with this, with a person who says he's given his life to God yes, and man. that he is, loves God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, yeah. doesn't want to spend even five <laughs> minutes at lunch with him? Right. What's with that? Yeah, yeah. So one of the things I'm trying to emphasize is that this is not, in a sense, an unusual posture to be in. It's nothing right. to uh, despair and yeah. say, this is, I'm the worst human being ever. It's so utterly typical that we don't even hardly notice it. Yes. And what I'm trying to get us to do is notice it. And yes. Yes, we have to still get up, get our kids to school. We right. have to go to this Christian education committee. Yes, we need to share the gospel with our neighbors. Yeah, 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 of course. But what what is really driving that? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so first off, I got to say how much I appreciate that posture. Because mm-hmm. I, I, that's, again, something we talk a lot about. Like, we were handed this tradition, this idea that especially the professional Christians 
probably get up every morning and just love it. And they're always in the word. And I always felt like <laughs> such a failure yeah. because all the pastors that I knew, you know, were journaling 17 hours a day. I'm like, <laughs> I, I don't have that in me <laughs> at all. So I'm just curious, just personally, because I think one of the best definitions of Sabbath I was ever given was what to ask the question, what stirs my affections for Christ? And I was in my 20s when I heard that. And I was like, I've never even asked that question. I just sort of did. I did Christian things. And I'm curious for you just as a human, as a as an image bearer, what are the things that stir your affections for Christ right now in your own kind of daily, weekly rhythms? So I do. Mm. Uh, I'm I hear this odd phrase. I'm pretty religious about morning devotions. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. So uh, and I'm reading um, what's called Liturgy of the Hours. It's a Catholic resource. Mm, yes. But it includes three psalms. It includes uh, uh but an opening psalm, three psalms, uh, a longer scripture reading, and then I usually a, a, a reading from the ancient church fathers, and then concludes with a prayer. So that's it's that's beautiful. an absolute minimum. Love it. Uh, and uh, yeah, there are days when I just do it because I know I need to keep doing it. Yeah. But, it, it, but invariably, there's some part of that morning in which I go, click, okay, yes, this is what I'm about. Yes. It's the Lord. Yes. It's the Lord first, first and foremost. Yeah. And when I'm able to just stop and do that, uh, if I can, it doesn't happen very much at noon, I will have to admit. Sometimes <laughs> I end up with evening prayer, or sometimes mm. prayer right before I go to bed. Um, anytime I can, um, so that would be part of it. Just, uh, In other words, anything I'm interested in, mm. I try to find excuses during the day to do it. Mm. So if there's something I can do during the day to help me remind myself to uh, whatever, I try to make a discipline of it and that's, yeah. but it has to be an engaged discipline. It can't be, I'm just doing this to get it out of the way right. and I can chalk up. I did a devotion mm-hmm. eight days in a row. Isn't right. that great? Yeah. Right. But more entering into it, engaging it, uh, sometimes just stopping in the middle of it and saying, okay, instead of just reading this road, let's just stop and meditate on this. Yeah. Uh, that's beautiful. Yeah. Well, I'm finding this fascinating. So let's do another, let's do another segment of it. And uh, we're excited that Mark Galley is here with us. Mark is going to stay with us for another segment here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm, and we are joined in studio uh, by Mark Galley. Mark is the editor-in-chief of Christianity Today. And uh, Mark, uh, looking at your bio, I I came across one fascinating line. It says this, before becoming a journalist, he was a Presbyterian pastor for 10 years, but he subsequently changed his denominational affiliation to Anglican. Uh, So you're steeped in the evangelical world and you were a Presbyterian pastor. Now you're an Anglican. I just want to hear about that journey a little bit. Well, when I was a pastor, I was naturally uh, struggling with this very same issue. And I Hmm. found... My morning prayers, which were all driven by uh, extemporaneous prayer, yeah. I found myself praying in ways that made me think, that isn't really what I'm trying to say, or mm-hmm. that feels so paltry and thin compared to what I'm actually wanting to express to God. And I found in the Episcopal Book of Common Prayer, prayers that were just absolutely magnificent and summed up what I was trying to say. Most mm-hmm. merciful God, I've, I, I, I confess to you that I've sinned in word and you know by what I've done and what what I have left undone. That's right. And it goes on in that sort of vein. And I I, I finish that. And as the prayer is moving along, I'm thinking of individual sins, but it talks about it generally. And I think, yeah, that's what I've been meaning to say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. So when I left the pastor to become a journalist, I decided, well, maybe I should check into a more liturgical uh, form of worship. And I found that it was uh, 
I will say for a person like me, in terms of this notion of the love of God, the, the liturgical worship does, in fact, help spark that more mm, uh, interesting. than anything. Uh, partly because, uh, partly pr- precisely because it's, it's, uh, it's, we repeat the same prayers and responses every week. That uh, yeah. most, many people find that a turnoff for that sort of thing. Mm. I find that uh, as I'm forced to li- read those or listen to those same prayer responses, it forces me to go deeper into the text. Yes, right. And so that helps me nurture that desire for God. Wow. It's the same sense of like the Lectio Divina, right? This divine reading is, is you know, I think so often we crave new and shiny. Yeah. And like one of the attributes of the Holy Spirit that Jesus tells us is that he'll remind you of the things I've already told you. This this sort of like ancient, remember what I told you then yeah. when you're, you know, tempted to crave new or shiny or fast. And I yeah. think... And what you're explaining there is actually, really true. Boredom is probably a signal from the Holy Spirit that not to go on to something new, but to find mm. out why are you bored? Oh, that's why a are you question. bored with it? What do you do with that question? When you feel the Holy Spirit nudging you in that way, like, why are you bored with this? Where do you go? Where, where does your mind and heart uh, go? Uh, it, one of the things it forces me to do, go, okay, what is it, what is it about this that uh, I'm finding boring? And well, let's just keep reading it till it's not. That really? sort of thing. Yeah. What is going on? What is really going on here? Wow. See, I think that's that's interesting because I, I don't know that and maybe maybe there's some research to support this. It feels like our attention spans as a culture are getting shorter and shorter and shorter. Definitely. Yeah. The first time I was invited to write for like an online blog, they're like, keep it 700 words or less emphasis on or less. Or less. I was yeah. like, 700 is an introduction. Like what? <laughs> like, people don't have patience for no. that. Like, how do you help inspire people to push through the boredom, whether they f- consider themselves a religious person or not there, we know that a lot of listeners are kind of like dipping a toe in the waters of religious conversation. Like what advice or encouragement would you give? Like when you're feeling the urge just to close it up, walk away, move on to something new. Like how yeah, do you but power just to remind yourself that I think boredom is a, is a gift of the spirit. Wow. It means that there is something askew in your heart and in your mind Man. and you're not re- you're actually looking at something. Usually it's scripture. Yeah. Uh, that's actually the word of God to you. Mm. And uh, it may not be that there's something wrong with scripture, but there may be something wrong with you. I yeah. mean, <laughs> one of my theories is that, or not, 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 not with you. I don't mean to be moralistic about that. Sure, but, sure. But th- there's that part of us that just really doesn't want to know God and to love him because to know God means I'll have to do things. <laughs> I'll have to obey him when I don't feel like it. Uh-huh. I'll have to go through some suffering. I will have to be willing to be exposed to some sins in my life. That's right. Um, and I mean, we we talk about uh, the lack of Bible knowledge in yeah. the last generation falling off, and there's and we've tended to chalk it up to the Bible's hard to understand and it's off putting. So we create more and more translations that are easier to read, and mm-hmm. we create more and more Bible reading methods, and the level of uh, Bible illiteracy continues to go down. Mm. My pet theory, I have no way of proving this, is that we read the Bible less and less, not because it's hard to understand. Because it's too easy to understand. Oh, interesting. And it forces us to actually deal with the Lord, our God. Hmm. And I don't know about you, but there are days I don't want to do that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. He is a, you know, mighty, he's merciful, he's loving, he's gracious, but he also has a vision for us to be better than we are today. That's right. To be more holy, to be more like Christ. And we all know that, that, that the, the, the end process is, awfully awesome yeah, yeah. the yeah, process no in between is sometimes <laughs> right. painful the chiseling the hammering yeah, away right yeah. i'm wondering as somebody again as the editor-in-chief of christian day you guys are in steeped in evangelicalism are you guys are you personally 
hopeful for American Christianity where it's going? Or are you all the way in the other end? Like, man, we need a reformation. <laughs> like, there's, yeah. we need something big somewhere in the middle. Where, where are you personally at? Well, I, I certainly think we need a reformation, certainly in evangelicalism. I mean, mm. evangelicalism started with, uh, with, with people being on fire, you know, the cliche on fire for mm-hmm. the Lord. Of course, it was an awakening, an unusual moment. But uh, there was this vital, personal, living relationship with Christ that they were known for. Yeah. I do think it would be helpful, Lord, you know, to mm. bring us another revival. But that's mm. up to him and his timing. Um. In the, in the question of whether I'm hopeful, uh, the answer is, of course I'm hopeful, because yeah. God has never deserted his church. Mm, that's right. uh, things might get a lot worse for another decade or two, or maybe even a century. I don't know. Mm. But I'm certainly not unhopeful. I mean, people talk about the evangelical movement uh, in crisis and fading away, and that may be, and maybe the modern expression of evangelicalism may fade away. But the Lord in every generation has raised up people who love Jesus, yes, who respect the authority of Scripture and obey it, who emphasize the cross and the resurrection and want to be out there witnessing for Christ in word and deed, he'll raise up another group. I don't yeah. know. They might be called something else. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he's a good God. Yes. He's not going to, he's not going to leave us. Yes. Okay. So that's actually, I think a perfect segue because one of the entries in this essay series, the title alone is pretty provocative. And I, and I know that you caught some heat for it. Even uh, the title is the church does not exist for the sake of the world. Would you just unpack that a little bit and maybe if you have time, explain some of the heat that you got and how you, how you responded to that? Yeah, the, well, the heat comes from people who are really, really uh, impressive Christians who, who mm. emphasize the missional, the mission, the church's missional uh, role or yeah. its mission, right. but it's more simply, right. which is to uh, love the neighbor as the self. And sometimes that love means sharing the gospel. Sometimes it means feeding the hungry. That's right. yeah. Sometimes it means working for racial justice. Uh, but, uh, as I point out in these essays, when, when missional starts wagging the dog, uh, things are really messed up and, mm. and it's going to lead to, it's either going to lead to more of a social gospel in which God becomes more per- peripheral element, mm. or it's going to, uh, lead people just to leave the church. Because if you actually want to make a difference in the world, yeah. you should go into politics or you should go into business because they're really good at that. Interesting. Mm. Uh, church is only so-so at that sort of thing. Uh, but what we're really good at is uh, we have a 2,000-year tradition of uh, worshiping God, of discipling people. Hmm. One of the things we disciple them to do is to love the neighbor and to go out and mission. That's right. Uh, and that if you look at Scripture, you look at the all the eschatological passages, the passages that talk about what is the end time like. Right. They all have to do with the people of God from all over the world, all the cultures of the world, all the kings of the earth come together in the new Jerusalem and they worship Hmm. and they glorify him. And they are just filled with beatitude, with blessing, with, with joy and happiness. That's really good. Being in the presence of God. Yeah. Uh, One of the things that indicates to me that we are a little askew in terms of our understanding right now is that when people say, well, you mean heaven's just a worship service? Mm. That makes it sound so boring to them. Yeah. But if heaven is a place where I could still can play soccer and go fly fishing and do my painting, <laughs> that's much more interesting. Right. And I'm thinking, when I feel that, I'm thinking, okay, that God is the greatest. Mm. The thing I enjoy about fly fishing or whatever is a hint wow. of how great God is. Wow. It's a picture. It's a little taste. Yeah. So... um I forget what the question was, but I just rambled <laughs> no, on. You, My preacher great. got it. No, you so, answered it beautifully. All right. It's beautiful. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you're listening to Mark Galley. He's the editor in chief of Christianity 
uh, today. If you've got feedback, questions, whatever you would like to give us, you could do so at Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show, or you can text us at 68683. Uh, for Ian Simkins, I'm Brian Fromm. This is the Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. You can find old shows at 1160hope.com or on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, wherever it is you get your podcasts. And uh, we are joined one more one more segment here by Mark Galley, Editor-in-Chief of Christianity Today. Thanks for letting us keep you for so long. We really appreciate it. Happy to do it. <laughs> so just this weekend, I was online looking around, and uh, I follow Christianity Today on Twitter, and up pops an article called The Temptations of Evangelical Worship. As a pastor and as an evangelical and a radio host, I'm like, wow, this is down my alley. I want to read this. And uh, and as I read it, I was like, oh, who wrote it? Right. Realize that you wrote it. So that's wading into, you know, some choppy waters. And, and so I'm curious um, if you could just kind of summarize for us, what are the temptations of evangelical worship? And in it, you kind of give some critique as to some things that uh, are dangerous or, or bothersome about yeah. typical evangelical yeah, yeah. worship that uh, I think are very interesting. Well, the uh, the the new music that we enjoy today, called praise music or mm-hmm. worship music, however you want to call it, has actually been a tremendous boon for the church. I think it's actually accomplishing a lot of the things I'm trying to accomplish in this service, in, mm. in the sense that its it, its attempt is to focus worship on God and to glorify God. So. I'd want to start off by saying that, even though I'm a, an old-fashioned Anglican who loves his <laughs> hymns, I get yes, it. I right. get the I get the new music stuff. Right. Um, but here's the thing I've noticed in in services in myself and uh, seemingly in in the people that worship with me is that I don't know sometimes if we know what we're singing, mm. which makes me wonder if I if we really know what we're there for. So, for example, we sing a song that says, "Bring your glory down, Lord." Well, I want to see your glory. Right. Uh, make me aware of your glory. And I don't think we know what we're asking for because in the Bible, when the glory of God comes down to people, yeah. Isaiah falls on the ground afraid he's going to die. Right. People freak out. People yeah. freak out. Yeah. When Jesus shows his glory in the catch of the fish, Peter falls to his knees and says, Lord, I am a sinner. Uh, but this isn't what we're looking for when we sing that song. What we're looking for is a, an, a, an uplifting emotional spiritual yeah. experience mm-hmm. which let's just say it that is a great thing yeah okay yeah but i think contemporary worship often wants to focus on only on that mm. uh moving people toward a positive spiritual experience which makes me sometimes wonder when i walk into wor- worship do i want to now worship god and meet him even if it's not going to be a good experience right or do i just come to church because i want a really good spiritual experience right and that would be another example of how the horizontal what goes on in me and among others often ends up trumping the vertical that's right um so that's uh, that's sort of the basic baseline and again you can't <laughs> i'm not criticizing worship music right. i'm not criticizing the raising of hands in worship and looking for some infusion of love and grace. Right. Uh, what I'm look, asking people to do is, uh, again, just look into your heart. Now, not during the service. You don't want to be super introspective while you're in worship. But later go, uh, you know, how can I enter into worship so that it isn't just about me and my feelings? That's right. But it is really about God. And I'm asking us just to do a self-inventory. I'm not That's trying great. to condemn what we're doing. 
But I am saying, and I, I'm, I make no excuses. Liturgical churches, which I'm a part of, and also just sing, if they just sing classical hymns, believe me, they can make the liturgy the t- total focus of the service. And they can be, after the service, be talking to another about how the acolyte failed to light the right candles. <laughs> and they've got to talk to the pastor about training the acolyte properly. Yes. And you're going, okay, I don't know that that was the purpose of worship to get, yeah, you, right. to get the liturgy right. That's okay? right. That's right. So it happens in all churches. Mm-hmm. And it's just a little yellow flag. Take a look. Yeah. I think that's so important. One of my mentors and has been for a decade plus is a professor at Judson University, a guy named Warren Anderson, who oversees the whole worship department there. Yeah. And it's taught me so much about what this article is asserting so beautifully. And this idea that you touch on a little bit is that even in some of our subtle, easily overlooked language, we talk about worship like it's the opening act to the main event, which is the sermon, which isn't worship. And then we have Ties yeah. and offerings in the table and all of that. Yeah. How do you help? Because I think sometimes like when I, Brian and I both talked about this, when we bring up like, let's all worship. In fact, even when we leave this building, it's worship. Uh, and sometimes people kind of roll their eyes. Like we get it. Pastor. Yeah. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Talking like a pastor. But seriously, let's close in worship. And you're like, <laughs> yeah. uh, so how do you help without making it seem like you're majoring in the minors or you're parsing hairs? Like how do you help people have a better understanding whether or not their stylistic um, proclivities differ? Because you talk about the part rock band, part late night comedy show, which yeah. when that preaching one comes out, I, I am going to have to read it and I hope that you'll come back. Cause I can't wait okay. to hear what you have to say. But, how, but all that to say, it how might you, be painful. Yeah, right. I'm sure it will be, but how do you, how do you help people begin to at least expand some of the categories of what it is that you're talking about without scaring them off or make it seem like you're just getting caught in semantics? Well, I think one thing might be to help people understand uh, that worship even though I emphasize the, the part in which we give glory and honor to God, worship in itself is a dialogue always. And there's those good. parts of the service in which we are giving praise or confessing to God. Right. There are parts of the service in which God is speaking to us. And that's yes. through the scripture reading, for example, yes. through the preaching of the word. Uh, and this is a, it's a, it's a conversation. It's a drama. It's a, hmm. it's a dialogue uh, that's going on now in worship. The difference between worship and, in a church setting and worship out in the world. Uh, obviously there are f- there, everybody, everybody has a, a liturgy of some sort in which right. they find this is the best way to carry on this conversation with God and this dialogue with God. And, mm. and it's really, in, it's much more intense than things that happen in the world. But if we conceive of worship, not just as something we give to God, but that it's this dialogue that's going on, then every part of the service has mm. meaning. Mm. The, the sermon is God to us. The offering is offering to God. Mm-hmm. The hymns can can work either way. Actually. That's right. That's right. It can be God speaking to us or us praising God. Uh, and it, it's this back and forth thing that makes it so, to me, dynamic, interesting, and finally. It's like a dance almost. It's like yeah. a dance. Another yeah. dance would be an, a dance would be another way of wow. putting it. That's yeah. beautiful. Uh, taking the topic a little differently, yeah, as the editor in chief of Christianity Today, I, I really just wanted to ask you as I was thinking about this interview, like, what's that like? <laughs> like, you're part of a institution and evangelicalism was started literally by Billy Graham. And like, I wonder if that's pressure or is that an honor or is it both? Like, what is it like to well, lead? What is it like to lead a publication like Christianity today? Well, it is a responsibility. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, but it, it is an, it is an onerous responsibility, especially when you buy, you know, quote unquote, buy into the mission and the mm-hmm. way we do it, which yeah. is uh, we try to be faithful biblically to what we think Christ is calling us to do in the world today. Mm-hmm. And we try to engage people in ways that are what we call ironic, uh, love people, 
you know, speak the truth in love. We that's try right. not to be mean spirited. We yeah. try to be fair to people we disagree with, that sort mm. of thing. And I think that's just a tremendous mission. Uh, well, here's how it works. If anything happens on Christianity you like, well, I'm responsible for it. <laughs> and if you don't like it, somehow I had nothing to do with it. It was right, while right. you were out of the office. So, right. <laughs> I was on vacation that week. <laughs> <laughs> but there is a, uh, as editor in chief, of course, I don't see everything that goes up beforehand. Yeah, I, right. I, I'm not involved in the day to day. I try to set vision. I talk to the senior leaders who actually are responsible for that. Right. Uh, so that, that's part of my job. Uh, big issues. Uh, I asked to see copy ahead of time. Uh, right. That's obvious, uh, but I also do other stuff like some fundraising because we're a nonprofit, uh, and I, I I do you know these silly crazy radio shows when they wanted to come on. <laughs> silly crazy, I'll take that. <laughs> we'll, we'll That's fitting. <laughs> uh, partly to yeah communicate things that I've been writing, but I've yeah. been writing them on behalf of Christianity Today, right? Uh, and I do want other people to spread those spread that word and see if it makes sense to people hopefully they'll find it helpful i love that all right so like in 30 seconds or less i mentioned this earlier we know that there's plenty of people that listen some who are deeply entrenched in the local church many of whom have been burned by it and walked away some who are are maybe dipping a toe in the waters for the very first time could you just maybe speak to the person who's feeling discouraged they're feeling underwater they're feeling like they're coming unraveled a little bit could you just pastor our audience a little bit to close well i think the church is it, uh, the, the, the world was created and uh, God created the world for the church and the church is the ultimate expression, as I said, of God, of our meeting with God in the, in the, in the end times yeah. or the, the eschaton. Mm. Yeah. But it is a frustrating place. Mm. The thing I love about the church is the thing that makes me most irritated with it. It is, the, <laughs> it is a perfect laboratory of love. Because oh, you have good. to learn to get along with people you really disagree with. And you have to learn to start to respect pastors who you think are kind of cockeyed. And you have to uh, wor- mm. sing worship songs with people who song- you don't like their taste in music. Yeah, right. And there is no better place to learn what it means to love God and love your neighbor than the local church. Amen. It's just a mm. tremendous laboratory for that. And that's one of the reasons. If you're discouraged, well, yeah. Yep, of course. We hear you. Your your spirit's being tested and your maturity is being called on. Sounds yeah. good. Thank you so much, Mark. This has been great. You've been listening uh, to Mark Galley. He is the uh, he's the editor-in-chief of Christianity Today. We can't encourage you enough to go online to ChristianityToday.com, and you can find the Elusive Present series that he so wrote. Good. So good. Also, I saw at the end you can subscribe. I believe it's called The Galley Report. You write a regular newsletter. Yep, it comes out on Friday. There Comment you- on articles that I link to. That's yes. wonderful. So we'd encourage you to do that. Mark, thanks again for joining us. We really appreciate Welcome. it. I'm happy to do it. Again, thanks. this is The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. <clears throat> Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. Well, that music can only mean one thing, and that is the end of the show, the landing of the plane, the docking of the boat, whatever it is you want. And that is just craziness that has been found on the internet. Trying to think of other metaphors. <laughs> Careful with them. <laughs> Carmeling of the apple. The <laughs> carving of the pumpkin. The... So as a reminder, Keith Conrad, our executive producer, he goes out and he find, he scours the internet for just crazy stories. <laughs> he goes out. Goes out like foraging the... in the woods. <laughs> like a Disney movie. <laughs> going through the internet. We haven't seen him in weeks. <laughs> he's out, gathering He's cares. out there in the World Wide Web right now. <laughs> he finds these and uh, like we, uh, we like to say, these might be funny, they might be disturbing, but we're reading them as you're hearing them for the first time 
Uh, so don't blame us. All right, ma'am, you're first. Okay, New York woman lies to cops about kid in stolen cars, so they'll find it quicker. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, gosh, that's terrible. Uh, Brooklyn woman whose idling car was allegedly swiped off the street Thursday lied to cops that her six-year-old nephew was inside, so they would try to find it faster, police and sources said. The 22-year-old woman told cops she'd left her 2008 Chrysler Pacifica running while she went into a store. Authorities said she told authorities that she returned and discovered her car missing. She then called 911 and claimed to the operator that her six-year-old nephew was inside. But when responding, cops found the vehicle 10 minutes later, just a few blocks away. There was no child, authorities said. Was that wrong? (laughs) Should I not have done that? Oh, boy. Australia. Police catch up with alleged bank robber after he gets stuck in traffic. Sure. A man has been arrested after allegedly robbing a bank with police catching up with him when his getaway car got stuck in traffic. Police claim the man went into a bank and passed a note to a staff member. He pointed at his waist to indicate he was armed and the staff member handed over an amount of cash before the man fled the bank, got into a green car and drove from the scene. Police quickly caught up with him on the highway where he was stuck in heavy traffic. (laughs) He surrendered and is charged with one count of armed robbery. <laughs> Ooh, that's a new one. All right, England. Uh, man accidentally gives nurses thank you cake laced with cannabis. Mm. What's, the, what's the accidentally part here? <laughs> a red velvet cake caused quite the stir at a British hospital earlier this year when nurses ate it, not realizing it was laced with cannabis. According to the Manchester Evening News, the nurses were left off their faces and quite relaxed after eating it. A man brought the cake to thank the staff for the care they provided to the family member. However, he didn't realize the cake was intended for his grandson's 18th birthday party and had a little extra kick. What? Although hospital officials... story's getting weirder. (laughs) Although hospital officials initially denied staff had eaten the cake, a staffer told the newspaper three or four nurses ate the cake and felt the effects. Staffer said the incident didn't have any impact on patients, but hospital officials called the police as a precaution. What are you people? On dope? <laughs> How po- surprising would that be? Police confirmed it was meant to be enjoyed at a teen's birthday party, but That's his just... grandfather brought it to the hospital as a gesture to, of kindness? The grandfather did. That's weird. England <clears throat> is crazy. England, speaking of crazy, Florida. Okay. Man posing as cop pulls over real deputy, tells him to slow down. Oh, boy. Another day, another... uh, I like how this starts. Another day, another outrageous Florida story. (laughs) This time, Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office said they arrested a man on July 4th who was pretending to be a cop and ended up pulling over a cop. According to the Sheriff's Office, around 8.30 p.m., Barry Lee Hastings, 35, pulled behind an off-duty deputy and flashed his white and amber lights. After the real deputy pulled over, Hastings reportedly went to the vehicle and warned him to slow down. When the deputy asked for Hastings' credentials, Hastings reportedly told him that he left those back in the office and told the deputy to follow him back to the station so he could show them to him. The deputy then dialed 911 and Hastings drove off down I-4 eastbound before being stopped by a real deputy. Upon searching Hastings' vehicles, deputies said they found a functional siren box along with a citizen's band radio. (laughs) Hastings is charged with impersonating a public officer. Take that badge out of your mouth. You're police officers. You know, my dad's friend actually did that once. Not only was posing as a cop pulling people over, but pulled over a uh, an off-duty cop. Did he really? It's true. That seems like a bad move. Yeah, through and through. Totally agree. <laughs> All right, last but not least, Colorado. Colorado bear accidentally gets stuck in car, crashes it. 
<laughs> Wait, what? No. Colorado police are reminding car owners to keep their vehicles locked at night after a bear accidentally sent a sedan rolling down a hill and crashing it into a tree. <laughs> that is so alarming. The incident happened Thursday night when the animal pulled open an unlocked door, climbed in, and accidentally got shut inside. The bear tore apart the interior of the car, trying to get out, and in the frenzy, apparently shifted it into neutral. The car rolled back. And off the driveway and about 100 feet down the hill, the four-legged suspect swiped a tree, rendering the car undrivable, but in the process, popped the door open and fled on foot or on pause in an unknown direction. I tried to get an interview with him. But they said, nope, you can't do that. He's a live bear. He will literally rip your face off. <laughs> so good. Oh, good job, Keith. That is the end of... I, I mean, are you always just wanting words, words of affirmation? Two thumbs you up. Just giving yourself accolades. I am now I'm looking in the mirror and just affirming myself. No, Brian. Anyway, we're glad that you joined us today. For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. This has been The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.